At this time, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Where we will read verses 1 through 11. You will find it on Pew Bible page 1859. Again, Titus chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. on page 1859. Before we read the word of the Lord, let us pray that he would bless it to us. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, as we come before you once again this morning, we ask that the word that is spoken and heard may change us. May it mortify the old man. May it quicken the new May we be convicted, may we be changed, may our minds be engaged, our hearts be molded, may your truth go out, be with your servant, help him to speak, may your Holy Spirit move, and may your people be satisfied. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, amen. Titus chapter 3, verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy." He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Thus far, the reading of God's word. People of God, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we read this morning from Titus chapter 3, a book written by Paul to Titus. And if you flip back, I know these have wonderful little introductions to each book, and it's only a page over, but we can read there that Titus was Paul's envoy, essentially, to Crete. Crete is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, Many people would know it from way back when you took ancient history that the Minoan civilization was there. Greek civilization as we know it kind of started there. But Crete kind of had a different reputation back in the days of Paul and Titus. Um, There is still a reason why we still use the word Cretan today. It's not a positive thing. And in fact, the civilization that was so regarded as the first to have multi-story buildings and running water 
and fruitful civilization full of gold and riches and wonders of the Mediterranean. And yet, 2,000 years later, it's considered one of the insults of the day. I can guarantee you, if you go up to a gentleman and go, you Cretan, he's not going to take it well. That was the environment that Titus went into. Cretans were considered quick-tempered, slovenly. Cretans were those people of society that were never really amounting to much. They were, well, they were on the wrong side of the tracks. In this case, the wrong side of the Mediterranean. Why in the world would you ever want to go there? Turkey is this wonderful, bustling hub. It's the center of Roman civilization. In fact, it was such a center of Roman civilization that eventually became the Byzantine Empire even after Rome fell. Or why wouldn't you go to Rome? At this time, the emperors are still in control. It's this glorious empire that spans as far as man knows in the Western world. Well, at least until you get to Bithynia and the Persians and, you know, the Mongols eventually. But this little island, why in the world would you go there? And yet, Titus, one of the two protégés of Paul, Timothy being the other one, specifically is sent there by Paul. To raise a church. Because the gospel comes to Cretans. And when you read Titus, the entirety of the book, it's not a very long book. I actually encourage you, if you're not going to stick to your Bible in a year programs that you're probably going to start next week, at least go through the New Testament and read the short books. Read James, read Philemon, read Titus. You'll find, especially in Titus, that there are so many things about Cretan culture that are so true today. And the sharp words of Paul to his servant Titus are so, so clear as to instructions, but also as to truth. That not only do pastors and elders and deacons, but even everyday Christians can look at, find encouraging, and find amazing because of what God has done. And so we're going to look at our passage this morning, four points. We're going to look at what we once were. We're going to look at the kindness of grace, the devotion I called it devotion to grace, but devotion to doing what is good is specifically how it's mentioned here. Then finally, a warning on how to avoid uselessness. So what we once were, the kindness of grace, devotion, and then avoiding uselessness. So we begin here in verse 3 specifically. Paul in verse 1 and 2 kind of give the introductory command sort of, Here's what you must do. Remember, remind them these things. Um, 
don't let them become so uproarious. In fact, he uses the word rebellion or rebellious a few times in the book of Titus. It's one of the buzzwords that are in there you see all the time. Um, they're evil brutes, actually, is what he calls them. And that's also derived into the whole uh, rebellious or rebellion uh, theme here. But in verse 3 specifically, he says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Notice how they have to be reminded to do these things. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Notice the markers of the old self here. We were foolish. We were those who relied upon our own wisdom. Instead of the fear of the Lord, we found our own way in this world. We didn't need what God was giving. Who cares? We were foolish. Rather than pursuing knowledge, we, we pursued our stomachs. In verse 1, again, where he calls them evil roots, he also calls them gluttons. Cretans are gluttons. Cretans are also disobedient, which is why he has to remind them in verse 3, or in verse 1 and 2, to be subject to authorities. But this is the two things I really want to key on this morning. Deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Notice that the old self here specifically is defined by being enslaved and deceived by passions and pleasures. People of God, don't we see this today? It's so clear today. What is our advertising geared at? The impulse buy. Well, you know, you need this brand new, whatchamacallit, 5,000 that will clean your dishes, wipe the floors, take care of your dog, and make sure your kids aren't doing anything bad. It's only five easy payments of $79.99 plus a $300 shipping and handling fee. It'll make your life more convenient. You'll have no problem. You go, oh, well, if it does all those things, yeah, it'd be great. And of course, what happens? You get it, and five days later, it breaks. Or the one thing you wanted it to do, and it doesn't really do that well. We're deceived, but we're also enslaved. Because it's not just the whatchamacallit 5,000, but it's the whatchamacallit 5,000, and then it's, well, I need this place to go out to eat, and I need this car to have, and I need this over here, and, well, I need to have good tires for the car, and then I need to have this over here, and, you know, I, I... We become enslaved to the things we buy, to the way our perspective shifts in life. It's no longer a 
vision or a view of what are the blessings that God has given me? How can I provide and what do I need to provide? But instead, our lives are lived by a series of wants. Do I want to really do this? Do I want to really do that? Or my favorite, let's take a look at Christmas. Remember, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Oh, that's great, yes. Let me put Jesus is the reason for the season on my wrapping paper. And I have to have that sign for my house. And I have to have a wreath on the front. And I have to make sure that there are Christmas lights everywhere. Even we too can be wrapped up in the trimmings of a season. We can be deceived very easily. Especially when we can't look at things rightly. When we take the spectacles of scripture and we set them to the side and say, you know what, Lord, I got this one, no problem. I've been doing this for years, it's not an issue. You know, I really don't have time for devotions this morning, it'll be okay. I know I didn't do devotions yesterday, but... You know what, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll sing a couple of songs and, you know, and a couple of hymns I remember from church in the morning, and that'll be my devotions, and that'll be good enough. I don't really remember those. Maybe a couple of Sunday school songs. Well, well you know, I, I know, you know, Jesus loves me. Everybody knows Jesus loves me, right? Wasn't there a second verse at one time? <clears throat> and eventually the slow foolishness Disobedience warps perspective, and then we can do nothing else but say, well, this is just kind of the way I've always done things. The house is going to look this way for the holidays because that's the way we've always done it. Well, we're always going to have Christmas here and Easter here and and the other holidays here, and this birthday there, and that birthday there, because that's just the way we've always done it. We become enslaved by habit. By the comfort that it brings. And we look for security in places other than our Lord. Comfort is probably the most dangerous of of them all. I know I should be going to church, but you know, COVID's really, it's so bad. You don't believe that God will work and protect? I'm I'm not going to throw a gauntlet one way or the other. What I am going to say is, God has given the ability of modern medicine, and we use those tools. But it doesn't mean I constantly live in fear because of a disease or because of this reason or that reason. Do I need to be aware? Absolutely. I'm not saying that we should just jettison all COVID protocols and all of our... Let me put it this way. 
When this whole thing first started, I said, we have to go back to kindergarten because we need to reteach people how to wash their hands and not sneeze on people. We finally learned that we need to wash our hands and not sneeze on people again. But how many more times does our society have to teach us again the things we were supposed to learn in kindergarten? Or better yet, how many times do we as Christians need to go back to our first couple years of Sunday school? Because we've become foolish and disobedient. And I need to remember that Jesus loves me, this I know. Because I can't think of any other deep theological things. I don't read, I don't pray, I don't follow spiritual disciplines. We become enslaved. Because our minds become darkened. And where does this lead us? Paul says it leaves us, it leads us specifically to living lives in malice and in envy, being hated and hating one another. If you don't think this is the truth, turn on the news. How many times, even just over the Christmas weekend, did we see people getting shot? The latest crime numbers being compared this year to last year. How much more violent crime has there been? We live in malice and envy because our perspective is not one of godliness, of righteousness... But rather, it's, what can I get out of this? I don't care what he has down the road, I'll just take it. We become envious. Always got to keep up with the Joneses or the Smiths. Whoever happens to live on the block. Maybe it's not the car. Maybe it's not the house, even. Maybe it's the family. Oh, they always look so happy when they're leaving after get-togethers. Oh, you know, so-and-so is able to buy their kids so many things for Christmas. Oh, well, you know, it's so good to have that time off because, you know, you can, we can spend that time as a family and, you know, uh, I need to have that because they have that. It just leads us down a path of I need, I need, I need. And we start confusing our needs for wants. And that kind of envy will lead to I need to lean on my workers harder because I need to make sure I get the time off but the work's got to get done. One of the famous examples of that, believe it or not, is a Christmas carol. Old Ebenezer Scrooge sitting at his desk. And when Bob Cratchit says, well, sir, can I go home for Christmas? 
Can I only work a half day? He leans on him. Well, then you better be in all the earlier the next. The enslavement of all kinds of passions and pleasures lead us to looking upon one another with nothing but hatred, envy, malice. And this is in direct contradiction to what we are told to do. Christ, in quoting the Levitical law, even said it this morning, one of the greatest commandments. From Leviticus 19, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. It's so easy to fall into the trappings of the season. And yet those trappings can lead us to becoming enslaved. That enslavement then changes our perspective on what it means to live with each other. And then we see in verse for this giant swing. The word but. It's like Paul's writings in therefores. You see therefore, well what's it there for? Same thing here, but. Paul's slamming on the brakes of the car that's going 80 miles down the road, spinning it around 180 degrees. But. When the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Paul says, we were just talking about Cretans in chapter 1. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And Paul says... You look at them that way. And you were the same way. What makes you different from them? Well, Titus, it's real simple. But. Not because you had your life in order. Not because you figured out your theological ducks in a row. Not because you finally got the house and the car and the boat and everything else. No. What changes it? What shifts the whole perspective? What makes you go from being, uh, from being foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved? God showed you kindness and love. He saved us. You see, Titus, when you go to these people, when you see these things that are happening, when you know that this is where the problem is occurring, when you see them living in total contrariness to God's law, realize not only was that you at one time, 
But remember what changed you. The kindness and love of God. And he continues. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. I had a friend of mine who went to an Arminian church, and she and I would debate constantly over these things. Well, you know, you Calvinists just believe in this unconditional election because, you know, you don't believe in the foreknowledge of God. And when God really talks about foreknowledge, this is how you actually think about it. No, 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 no. Don't be putting words in my mouth. But her understanding of the foreknowledge of God and how salvation worked was this. God knew that you were going to choose him. So before the foundations of the world, he chose you. I went, wait a second. Then how can God be the author of our faith? You're, that, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't jive theologically. You're kind of putting the cart before the horse. But instead, we read passages like this, and we see, quite simply, he saved us. And then, in fact, you could almost just put a period there. He saved us. But Paul explains it. He saved us, not because of your righteousness. He saved us, not because of what you've done. He saved us. Not because of your dishonesty or your enslavement or your foolishness or your disobedience. Remember, those are all things contrary to the word of God. He didn't save you because of those things. He saved you because he showed you kindness and love. If you want to know the reason for God's election... What are the conditions for God's election, if you want to call it that? It's that God shows you kindness and love. So if you want to call it conditional election, the only conditions are from God. You can't call it a condition because, well, you know, I did this, or I accepted this, or I said that. That's why we as Calvinists call it unconditional election. Because I don't have to have ducks in a row. I don't have to have my life okay. I don't have to be the one that everybody looks up to just to be saved. No, as we read this morning, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He saves us unconditionally. That is justification. And having been justified by his grace, what then happens? He saves us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. I had to read a book when I was both in seminary and actually when I was in college called Redemption Accomplished and applied. Paul here talks sort of in those terms. 
Redemption was accomplished. God saved us. Justification. Penal substitutionary atonement. You were guilty. You are now not guilty. There is a complete change in the judgment. That is justification. You are just. You are righteous. But then what comes next? He saves us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. True conversion. The Heidelberg Catechism says that the Holy Spirit mortifies the old man and quickens the new. I love the older language. But there is a putting to death of the old self and a bringing to new life of the new self. You see, right here in our passage, God saves us, not because of something that we've done, not because of righteousness that we've attained, not because of something that I can hang my hat on and go, see God, you're saving me because of that. Instead, he does so because he shows kindness and love to us and then gives us his Holy Spirit so that we are born again. So that we are made new. He gives us renewal. He gives us a second chance. Isn't that what the Christmas season is all about? Those who were walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who were walking in foolishness and disobedience and deception have finally been shown the kindness and love of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is absolutely the reason for the season. Don't ever discount that. But it should never be made trite either. The second part of this is a devotion to doing what is good in verse 8. He says, so that having, sorry, in verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs of having hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want, to, I want you to stress these things. Stress these things. What am I supposed to stress? That you've been justified by his grace. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. There are so many times, especially being a student, when you try and figure out what should I be doing? When I was at Ileana, back when it was in Lansing, I was one of the smart kids. 
I could always just go from class to class and do my homework and everything was fine. And then I hit that brick wall right when I got to senior year. Oh, I have to specialize. I'm taking AP classes now. Oh, wait, what does it mean to study? And then you get to college. And one of the first things they gave me in orientation was this little bag. And I'm going, well, what's in the bag? Okay, fine, I got papers about this and papers about that and this thing and that thing. And, you know, this is how much college is costing you and please don't look at the numbers. <laughs> but one of the things they gave me that I found out was so important was a planner. And one of the people that first talked to me, one of my RAs, said, you will not have enough time, period. It doesn't matter if you want to do things or if you need to do things or if you have to do things, you're just not going to have enough time. So whatever time you have, put it in the planner and make sure it's profitable. If you didn't notice, my RA was a business major. Make it profitable. People of God, you only have a limited time in this world. You don't have enough time. Is it profitable? Or do we fill it with things that are foolish? Quarrels, disobedience. What are we stressing in our lives? Do we stress things like daily devotions? Do we stress things like greeting people with a smile? Do we stress things like having an ear for people who really need to get something off their chest? Or would we rather stress things like it's the busy season at work. I'd really want to be home, but I can't. Do we stress things like, well, you know, I got to make sure that I make this bread. I want to have a good summer, so I got to have a busy winter. Yeah, I know I should be doing devotions, but I need that extra half hour in the morning. I got to get that early start. One of the things that I have had to do ever since I started working on this sermon was when I wake up in the morning, what am I doing today that is excellent and profitable for everyone? There are many things that are profitable for ourselves. Read a half hour a day and grow your IQ by 200. Make sure you eat your vegetables and your fruits. Grow up strong and healthy. There are many things that are profitable for ourselves. Well, work 15 minutes on a new language and in a couple weeks you'll be able to read it, write it. But there are very few things in this world that are profitable for everyone. There are very few things in this world that are profitable and excellent. For everyone. 
You see, that is the rub. What in this world is excellent and profitable for everyone? And we find it in verse 8. That they may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And I'm going to be that two-year-old. Why? Why am I devoted to doing what is good? Why is there a point to doing what is good? Let's go back. Verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You see, people of God, when there is a justification, there becomes a sanctification. That's the second part of this. Now you have been shown the kindness and love of God. Now you have been quickened to the new man. Now the old man is dead. But how then must we live? We must be careful to devote ourselves to doing what is good. Because those things are what are excellent and profitable for everyone. And it doesn't mean that you have to write a six-figure check to a charitable organization. It doesn't mean that you now have to sell everything and go over to a country like China or Japan or Cambodia or somewhere in the middle of nowhere so that you establish a church. It doesn't mean that everyone is called to do those things. But what it does mean is that the little things, as we enter into a new year, People make these resolutions. How about we make a resolution to stick? Let's do things that are excellent and that are profitable for everyone. Let's go into work with a smile on our face, even if we don't want to be there, to raise spirits. And when people ask you, why in the world are you coming into work with a smile on your face every single day? I have a savior. Let me, tell him about, let me tell you about him. Why in the world are you the person that everybody can talk to? Why are you the one, even if you don't have the time because you're in the middle of something, why in the world do you sit there and sit on the phone for 15, 20 minutes with somebody while they rail your ear about something? Because God, my God listens to my prayer and it makes me feel so much better that I have his ear. How can I not give my ear to someone else? <coughs> Why in the world do you not go on this vacation or that vacation? Well, you know, I just don't have the money. Well, why don't you have the money? You make the same as everybody else. Well, you know, let me talk about this project my church was doing. Let me talk to you about this missionary and what they're doing over in this country or that country. What is profitable and excellent? That is what we are to vote, devote ourselves to doing. And finally, Paul gives us a warning. 
avoid uselessness. Verse 9 through 11, avoid controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. I read this passage and I got really discouraged. What do you mean? I can't have theological debates anymore? But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and arguments. You see, back in Paul's time, you had people that were arguing things. Like, well, I'm so-and-so's son, so-and-so's son, and so-and-so's son of the tribe of this, of this, and this. Many of them would be Judaizers. Their salvation was in their genealogy. In fact, if you go out to Utah today, the Church of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormon Church, they are some of the best genealogical experts in the world. Why? Because they trace back their genealogy generation after generation after generation so that they can baptize them. Because as long as they're baptized, we can get them in the church. Ah, but I was so-and-so's son from so-and-so's son who was actually part of this tribe who actually knew Brigham Young who did this. Avoid the genealogy. The only genealogy we truly need is I am so-and-so, a son or daughter of the king. Co-heir with Christ, washed by his blood, because he died and rose again. What controversies are there? Well, pick one. You want to debate music, if you want to debate this protocol or that protocol, if you want to debate this church law or that church law, there is no end to them. But what are the controversies that we have to talk about? Who is Christ? How has he saved us? Who is God? What has he done? And what does it mean to live for him? Things that detract from the excellent and profitable. But there are still going to be people that are divisive. There are still going to be people that are going to try and pull others toward themselves. The cults. Heretical churches. These churches in quotations there. We see these people like the Branch Davidians, like those who lived in Jamestown, the Heaven's Gate cult. So many people are searching for truth in so many wrong places. Let's not get lost in the controversies. Let's not get lost in the genealogies and arguments and quarrels about this law and that law. Rather, let's stand for the truth. 
Let's not become foolish, darkened according to the old ways. Let us not become deceived by the pleasures and passions of this world. Let us not regress into malice and envy to those around us, but rather let us live with careful devotion to do what is good because of the mercy and grace extended. Why? Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we enter into 2022, as we change from one year to another, as we walk out of these doors for the last time on a Sunday morning in 2021, let us devote our things to that which are excellent and profitable for everyone. Let us have careful devotion to grace. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we come before you once again asking for your blessing, that we should have careful devotion to grace, to the good works that you've called us to do. Lord, give us your peace, your grace, and your hope for a new year. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for it is not our righteousness, but it is in his that we are saved. To the operation of the Holy Spirit that applies it to us, that quickens the new man. Amen.